0: Resuming debate. Resuming debate. Resuming debate. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Resuming Debate. Uh, so, you're all probably familiar with that famous Dosakis beer commercial uh, where they talk about the most interesting man in the world. Uh, I'm, I'm very pleased to have the most interesting woman in the world, uh, though not yet recognized by Dosakis, uh, Amanda Actman, uh, joining the podcast today. Amanda worked in my office for, I think it was about between three and, and four years, and uh, we became good friends through that process, worked together on a lot of uh, projects, uh, but Amanda doesn't have the typical political staff or profile. Uh, she's she's got a, a, a lot of different interests and in, involved in a lot of different things uh, that I think are are particularly relevant now. So we're going to talk about uh, two of her her main areas of of action and activism, uh, euthanasia, as well as uh, as as promoting peace and understanding in the Middle East. So Amanda, great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining me for this conversation.
1: Thank you, Garnet. Good to reconnect with you this way. Uh,
0: so I, I wondered, uh, I know, but our, our listeners don't, if you could share a little bit about the project you're working on right now. Uh, you're traveling across the country, working in a number of different cities. If you could share with people uh, about this uh, this project on death and dying that you've been working on.
1: Sure. So the project is called Dying to Meet You, and it's about creating a positive, aspirational vision around end of life. And a lot of this was really motivated by the work that we were doing together in the office, trying to prevent the expansion of euthanasia at the time on the basis of disability and mental illness. But even before that, I've had a long standing concern about euthanasia from the time that it was legalized in 2016 and even long before that with my general interest in promoting human dignity and human rights. And so when those issues came to the fore, I started to think, wow, we don't even so much have only a culture of death, though I had been familiar with that term, as we seem sometimes to have death without culture and particularly in the course of all of the multiculturalism work that you were doing, and and that's also a shared passion of mine, promoting the robust pluralism that we have in this country. I thought, how can we learn from the richness and breadth of cultural traditions to restore the meaning of death and dying in our lives and in our communities? Because as one of my favorite philosophers puts it, that um, significance is meaning that gets toughened by the consciousness of finitude. That is what we find significant is brought forward through the experience and the knowledge of our mortality. And so as we were seeing the expansion of euthanasia and also the crisis with COVID and so many other uh, related issues, I started to wonder how can I humanize end of life and kind of broaden the cultural conversation around death and dying. And that was some of the impetus that led to the Dying to Meet You project, but we can get into unpacking that further. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and let's let's do that. But I want to use some of the things you said as a as a jumping off point. Um, when, when I've been involved in this debate around uh, around euthanasia, the laws around medically assisted or, or facilitated death in Canada, um, the the people that are um, more skeptical are often accused of being afraid of death. People people that are promoting the expansion of these laws will say, "Look, death is a normal part of life, and therefore people should." be able to to choose it. It sounds like what you're saying is affirming a piece of that, which is that death is a part of life and an important part of life and something to think about and 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 face. Uh, but you're also uh on the side of those that are critical of these these expansions. So how how would you respond to sure. those who say that you know opposition to euthanasia or euthanasia in particular cases is a is a manifestation of of fear of death.
1: Sure. So I think first and foremost, by looking at what euthanasia actually is, what do we mean by it? And with so many euphemisms obscuring what we're actually talking about, it can be sometimes difficult to see that euthanasia fundamentally changes our relationship to the nature of death and dying. That experience is fundamentally different. Death is sad. It's grievous. We all know that it's difficult. And so there's no glossing over, there's no facile approach to it, but by reducing death to a scheduled appointment, by bringing physicians to the role of uh, really direct killers of their patients, this wreaks havoc in our society and it ends up harming first and foremost those whose lives tend to be regarded as less worth living, usually by onlookers or bystanders who can't imagine that a life with a disability or a life with advanced age or a life with cancer is worth living. And we know that people consistently rate the quality of other people's lives As lower than they themselves would rate their lives. And so it's really for all of these reasons changing the very way that we relate to death and dying, and changing the role of those who are accompanying the dying person from one of accompaniment, from holding their hand, from patiently abiding the difficulty and being in the midst of that sorrowful, anguished moment with them, rather than creating this chasm of some technical person who is managing death. And the sufferer who has nothing in common with them—that is a basis for dehumanization that turns some people into the masters and controllers of life, and others into victims of their fate. When really, what we're called to is a solidarity with one another in the face of these deeply human realities.
0: Okay, so that's that's the critique of of, uh, of euthanasia. Um, on the positive side, could you share with us, like, what a a positive vision of 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 death with culture would look like if someone came to you and said based on the research you you've done um you know their their um their death is approaching you know uh, uh because of because of some ailment uh let's say uh and what, what would you tell them about how to plan and prepare for um for a um a death that was that was uh meaningful and um you know, I guess there's there's this expression, a good death, right? Which I, I think we'd be reluctant to use in in most cases today. But uh, but if someone was was trying to think about about how to how to live that experience well,
1: well, there are certainly countless stories I could tell, but I think I'm going to tell one that's uh, of actually a mutual friend of ours and of an intern who was working on uh, Parliament Hill, and that's Brett. So Brett was um, someone whose father was going through ALS, and I remember he came into your office. And and uh, he ca- he came to visit me. In. And at the time, I was doing my year-long blogging about death. So just to back up about that for a moment, on January 1st, 2021, I set a New Year's resolution to blog every day about death and dying and to find stories. And this created a real opening for people to come and share. And so Brett, who was working on the Hill, came and said, I know you're doing the death blog. That's how he put it. And he said, my dad is dying of ALS, can I tell you my story? So I said, of course you can. And and he shared the story about his father, Rick, and all that he was going through. And in sharing this story, he found that he was able to express things for which he didn't have the words before. And in sharing this story, he was able to send a link about everything that was going on that he had shared to family and friends when he didn't necessarily have the words to share that in conversation. At least he could pass along his story in this somewhat more polished way and that was a big help to him and thankfully his father was able to to read that story and brett became such an incredible advocate as as you know he was trying to meet with as many members of parliament to raise awareness about als and he called it the race to 338 and he was meeting with mps across the political spectrum and gaining the respect for his passionate advocacy in honor of his dad And he told me that his father had uh, been told to, to consider euthanasia. He never would have opted for that. But his resistance to go that route had inspired others with the same condition not to pursue that. And Brett was sharing all of this with me. Well, I kind of relaunched this initiative, Dying to Meet You, on August 1st. And it was right at that time that we found out with shock that Brett himself died just the day before. This was so startling to me uh, as his story and the way that he had shared it was so moving and then I saw the effect of his life and death on so many of his friends and our friends and colleagues and I think in just telling these stories and of course everyone has stories and some people can uh, glorify a premature death through euthanasia and purport that it is ideal but I think death in its suddenness, death in its naturalness, brings home that we never know how long we have. And so it's important that we already start doing the things that count. There was a time when Brett wasn't sure he could, of how much he could do, but particularly because of his father's illness and death, he was full of gusto and determination. And I hear these stories again, and again so when i'm sitting next to someone on a flight and speaking about euthanasia and, and the person might say well for als that would be the kind of condition that justifies euthanasia i think what a difference what a basis for deprival we would see in so many lives and relationships if we had cut short those opportunities to love to be deepened in our own sense of mission and love because of the experiences that we endure with others. So that's that's one among so many stories I could I could tell.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's that's really powerful. And and certainly, Brett, uh, mutual mutual friend of ours, um, his his sudden passing um, uh, was it was tragic. It, it was also interesting to see that just the, the volume of tributes from uh, elected officials at senior levels uh, who knew him and knew about his work really underlined uh the um um the work he had he had done so uh it's it's sometimes uh, it, it's tragic in a way though that that um when someone when someone passes that that's it's often at that point that you realize uh the nature and scope of uh, of the impact and and maybe the person themselves doesn't see it in in the moment um um i did maybe just want to jump off on one aspect of your response though which is like i wanted to ask you about storytelling because um, when when you worked in my office, um, I I think maybe like a lot of conservatives, I, I would have had this natural instinct towards, uh, uh, sort of numbers and statistics as the way of, of proving uh, a point. Um, and, and you really taught me a lot about how, uh, storytelling is important in, in politics. And I guess one criticism of stories is that, is that, one individual's experience may not be representative of, of the larger phenomenon. You can often find a story uh, that in fact um, uh, skews the reality of a situation. But at the same time, we, we as humans naturally connect with stories, we understand stories. Um, tell us a bit about, about your work on storytelling and the role you see storytelling playing in advocating for, for, um, for ideas and issues.
1: Sure. Well, I'm so grateful that within the context of the office, we were able to experiment as a team with engaging people and their real vulnerable uh, stories because that was so humanizing of much of the work that we did. And it became a basis for some of the the deepest friendships uh, that have uh, really lasted and continue to, uh, and continue to ever since then. So I remember that when, uh, Bill C-7 was introduced, the bill to expand euthanasia, we created a, a petition site to oppose this legislation, and it was called nosamedaydeath.ca, and uh, we enumerated how this entailed, this legislation was entailing the removal of all the safeguards that had beaten been deemed essential just a few years prior. There used to be a need for two independent witnesses, then one, there used to be the 10 day reflection period, then that could be scrapped. And there was the second track for people whose death was not reasonably foreseeable and all this erosion of safeguards and this really reckless further expansion of an already terrible law. And so we quickly amassed many, many signatures petitioning the government to stop this and because of that we're able to then ask the people who had signed that petition to share their stories. We needed stories and when we put out that call for stories it was overwhelming because our office received hundreds of personal stories from people all across the country, not only your constituents, but so many people had responded with personal stories about how the expansion of euthanasia would put the lives of they themselves or of their loved ones at risk and poring over these stories was really overwhelming and sometimes i had to step back and and take breaks from it and really think about each one and, and pay attention to each story and we really endeavored to respond to each one it really had seemed like our political office on the hill had become a crisis office and it's not expected that parliamentary offices become sort of suicide prevention offices. But this was the kind of the nature of some of the the correspondence we were receiving was just so heavy and so desperate for us to do our utmost. And so from among those stories, we were able to reach out to some of the people who had submitted stories and In some cases, we spoke to them privately and confidentially, and that was able to inform your work and and what you were able to share uh, with respect for that confidentiality and uh, privacy uh, to inform your work. But then for others, they were much more willing to go public with their story. They said, this is so important that I'm willing to even be the face of uh, a campaign to oppose this legislation, as was the case for... Both Taylor and Leah, who were in the short films we produced around these issues, that went—they ver- they went quite viral because they were compelling stories shared with a, a degree of vulnerability. And I think it's not always the case that conservatives are speaking with a, a vulnerability and a compassion that enters into the real suffering that people may be experiencing. But that is not antithetical to our tradition. There is a deep compassion uh, among uh, those who share these values. And so just bringing that to the fore by saying your story matters, we see you, we affirm you, becomes the basis for um, promoting the the values that bring us all to this work every day.
0: Yeah, that's... um... That's bringing back all sorts of of memories uh, for me, um, and and thank you for sharing that. It was, um, I mean, I think often when politicians are producing videos, they're videos of them. And during that time, um, I mean, we, we put out some videos of me talking about the issue, obviously, but we had a a really powerful response to being able to um, um, to share videos of people talking about their stories and um, I think the last speech I gave in the house uh, on this issue was uh, speaking about my cousin uh, mm-hmm. uh, who who uh, died by suicide and so these um, I mean these stories are in everybody's life in some way right uh, mm-hmm. family friends extended family affected by um, affected by um these kinds of issues um so what is maybe share a bit more about the work you're doing now in terms of storytelling because you've been uh, i think the, the last video you you posted was uh kind of sharing some some views and traditions uh, from uh, the perspective of a of a, an indigenous woman in, in Vancouver um, so you're you're, you're producing a, a number of these these short video type presentations uh, as That's well That's right.
1: right and this is because I, I so enjoyed this component of the work that it's worth doing even outside of the work uh, on the Hill and in the office. It's it's so meaningful and it's it's such a joy to go and hear someone's story because to produce these four-minute short films, uh, whether the ones that we cooperated on or, or the, the ones that I'm releasing now, usually involves interviewing for much longer, maybe an hour and a half or two hours. And I so delight in hearing a person's story and drawing out their own insights in the course of an interview and then distilling those gems into this narrative form that can be a gift for others and and keeping it short so that people can take it in. So uh, the latest uh, short film, it's called Go on Living, and it's with Eulalia Running Rabbit. She's actually a Blackfoot uh, elder. And so this was in Alberta. And uh, just before I moved out to BC and I am basing myself in four cities for about three months each in order to get a different pulse and to tap in with different um, faith and cultural communities all across Canada on these issues and really to engage those regional differences. So in this video, she shares a little bit about uh, what her father's funeral was like. She shares a little bit about some indigenous customs. And really what what she also shares is that after a very. Uh, debilitating car accident, um, she could have very much been, been tempted to, to give up uh, on life. But because of being shown uh, a photo of her new uh, grandchild, she completely had this revived sense of hope. And I, I just think that's, that's so kind of, in a sense, it's a common experience, but it, it's beautiful and it's worth drawing out. And uh, I was just reading in uh, Pope Francis's catechesis on, on the elderly the other day. He talks about when when, uh, people, when people's children have children, then they are like really born again. Like grandchildren kind of uh, give a, a, a rebirth and a, reinvigorate their grandparents in such a delightful way. And a- anyone has seen that. You don't need to prompt grandparents to speak about their grandchildren. It's just this effusive kind of uh, love. And so I think just just seeing that and and affirming that the role of grandparents, the role of elders is something that most would know in maybe a a cursory way is part of Indigenous culture and is something that we have to glean. And I remember you wrote uh, an article about this after your visit to the North when you were reflecting on suicide prevention efforts and what image it sends to the young if the elderly – begin to be euthanized and how i really believe that this is an intergenerational um crisis like i i think that uh euthanasia and it is a form of suicide and you have called it suicide with an accomplice and i I think that's that's accurate and so yeah if you have anything else to share about your experience in the in the north and how your own travel experiences to different regions and with different um cultural communities in your various roles um around multiculturalism have have also shaped your desire to to do this work
0: yeah i mean I, I i would say like one of the things that i love about uh doing sort of cross-cultural engagement work is that um i learn things that are relevant to to all kinds of other issues i'm working on i've i've learned a lot uh in terms of my perspective on um on death and dying, but also sort of communitarianism, communitarian values versus individualistic values. From talking to uh, indigenous uh, indigenous peoples, what struck me, and and I think I owe this insight to uh, Robert Falcon Watt, who's a former former Liberal MP, the only Liberal MP uh, who who opposed the government's initial euthanasia uh, bill, uh, and who. Um, and who who did so on the basis of his fidelity to his, his understanding of his own indigenous traditions. Um, uh, He he, he was the one who said to me, you know, what message does it send to younger people if older Mm. people are choosing this path? And what struck me about that was that it was a different kind of argument against, um, against euthanasia um, than we were hearing from most of the opponents of it. Actually, most of the opponents, uh, Still, frame their opposition in in more kind of individualistic terms because that is the um, that is that is a a relatively common denominator in our political debate debates. It's 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 what is the impact on the individual, the expression of individual rights. Whereas he was approaching the question from a what is the impact on communities, what is the the relevance of of uh, of example. Um, And that was that was it was interesting because. because yeah, cross-cultural dialogue makes you question your assumptions, and uh, we have a government right now that talks a lot about consulting indigenous peoples, um, but I think on on some of these core issues has um, has really failed to to listen and learn. Maybe maybe they want to use consultation as an excuse to achieve achieve. Their pre-existing policy objectives, like like uh, blocking energy production, uh, but mm-hmm. when it comes to to listening on these more fundamental cultural issues, they're they're failing to do so. I
1: think that's right. And the government announced with pride that they're spending nine hundred thousand dollars. This is in the beginning of the fourth annual report on euthanasia produced by Health Canada, and the minister is saying we're going to spend nine hundred thousand dollars activating Indigenous people on medical aid in dying. And so it's, it's about a mobilization effort. It's, it's not even uh, purported to be serious consultation. It's we're going to identify the people who will zealously promote this. And really, uh, as I wrote in a piece recently, there's no cultural safety when it comes to euthanasia because um, suicide is antithetical. Suicide and euthanasia are antithetical to cultural preservation because they destroy persons who are the bearers of culture.
0: Hmm.
1: They destroy persons who are the bearers of culture.
0: Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um... I want to kind of pivot the conversation a little bit now because I know we could we could uh, keep delving into these issues for for the full hour, but I want to I want to work through a number of times. maybe this is this is like half a pivot, so we're still sort of talking a little bit about this, but maybe some other issues as well. You've you've traveled and lived around around the world. You you were um, you went to Europe for a couple of years after you you uh, left my office. Um, what does Canada look like uh, from a distance and to other people around the world? There's uh, there've been you know, some some dramatic changes obviously in the country over the last uh, eight years. Um, there's uh, um, you know there's there's obviously the euthanasia piece is, is part of it, but a lot of other things going on as well. What do what do people think about Canada and Canadians in mm-hmm. some of the other places you've lived and worked?
1: Well, I absolutely love traveling. It's right. It's such a basis for deepening in perspective. And I think the reflective distance I gain makes me come back full of kind of vigor to to serve Canada best. And for two years before coming uh, to work on the Hill, I was studying in Poland and I was studying um, John Paul II. And I was also steeping in the history uh, of Nazism and communism and, and these these ideologies to which I think Poles are much more sensitive. And so in Poland, there's this this greater sense of history because it's close, uh, it's closer in proximity time-wise, and it's geographically all around you. And so the sort of geopolitical interest that is able to be sensed there is quite interesting. And so when we have naivety about uh, ideologies, especially when we've seen iterations of those ideologies before, there's this kind of standing on guard against them that I find and, and deeply cherish in Central Europe. And then I was in Italy for two years. I was in Rome studying and also visiting all other parts of Italy. And uh, it doesn't have its reputation for nothing. There's a real leisure to life and there's real uh, joy of living. And I remember being in uh, in Naples Uh, shortly before Christmas which is covered in uh, nativity scenes they even put little soccer players in all the nativity scenes and it's just it's it's very fun and it's so colorful and so vibrant and I was just walking down the streets thinking this doesn't seem like a society that (laughs) wants euthanasia and just so much intergenerational living um, in terms in the streets and uh, everyone seems to have a place and, and kind of belong in these kind of European streets or or town squares, uh, not to overly romanticize it. Of course, these issues can emerge anywhere. And we are seeing lots of countries uh, become tempted and kind of seduced by this euthanasia deception. So I try and sound the alarm wherever I go internationally. And most recently I was in Cebu in the Philippines and I was speaking there Issuing warnings to them about not not uh, bringing in euthanasia in the Philippines because this is sometimes a consideration and a temptation, and I basically said, do not trade the the challenges and even certain forms of poverty of being a country that is developing or an emerging market for the for a, a euthanasia society because this is an existential kind of poverty that's not better. We don't. Um, as, um, as Mother Teresa was always pointing out, when she spoke about the poor, the poorest of the poor who she served in Calcutta, she, she was very often juxtaposing it and, and bringing into the conversation the poor in very first world developed countries and saying this is also uh, sometimes an even greater form of poverty, the loneliness, people being die- people dying and not being found for weeks or months. Uh, she spoke about this in uh, her Templeton Prize address and on many other occasions. So, yeah, I just think it's so interesting to and also intergenerational households in, uh, in the Philippines. When I said that it's so unique in Canada to have this experience, they um, they kind of appreciated that being pointed out because for them, it's so natural. And sometimes that's out of a kind of dependency, um, but it can be a real strength. For a culture and even for the basis of the identity of the young people because we know who we are and this is certainly the case for you and I and the ways that our grandparents have so forged our own trajectory and and solidified uh, the basis for our identity, um, there's a clarity that to our our respective uh, missions because of how uh, grandparents hand on uh, certain traditions and things like that.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's um, that's a, a fascinating kind of tour through through some of the things you've you've learned in recent travels. But I want to just put maybe put a fine point on the question of if if sort of relatively unprompted, you say say to some of these these folks you're meeting around the world, conferences and other things, I'm from Canada. Um, what- First, they
1: mention in my circles often Jordan Peterson.
0: Right okay.
1: and Justin Trudeau, they'll say, "What's up with Justin Trudeau?" And they'll say, "Oh, Jordan Peterson's from Canada. And so right. those are some of the quick reactions, to be honest, that I end up hearing about and, and and then I tell them I'm even from the same province as Jordan Peterson, and then they think that's cool uh, and and of course so are you. And so uh, yeah, uh, he definitely has a lot of notoriety uh, for his outspokenness and for for his boldness on uh, a range of issues. so people do know him. He's also traveled uh, quite widely, and then yes, I sometimes people look at the situation of, of euthanasia in Canada, and, and they say, "Isn't isn't Canada the worst on this? Isn't Canada number one?" But in in a bad sense, and so there is this kind of awareness. I think sometimes more internationally than even in our own country that this is uh, is a big crisis, and I think we're seeing that uh, in terms of uh, at press, like basically. The, the CBC will put out stories every few days glorifying euthanasia and doing profiles of people who died and saying, isn't this great? Uh, whereas we're really counting on international media to sound the alarm about how there are so many human rights violations and persons with disabilities, Indigenous people, seniors, people with different illnesses, people who can't afford to go to the U.S. for Treatment that they should be able to get here, all these cases. So yeah, I, I think um we we should not overestimate the extent to which other countries are thinking about us, because uh frankly, people have their own regions and their own kind of national politics uh to attend to. But if if people are kind of noticing, then then they've definitely heard about Trudeau by now. And they whatever they've heard is that he's wreaked havoc on the economy, on the social fabric, on pretty much everything. So, uh, yeah, there's, you, you, pro- you probably different
0: have different groups of people internationally, you know, who, 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 who have a favorable view of Trudeau and not of Peterson and then, and then <laughs> vice versa. And, sure. and, and, um, but, um, but that's, um, yeah, I, I think your consistent is experiencing with, is consistent with mine in that, uh, the canadian experience around euthanasia has become a cautionary tale in the international conversation uh i don't think there is any country that is looking to canada and saying uh we want to we want to follow that experience i mean stories of 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 people um being pushed in the direction of euthanasia because of poverty and that i think if anything in in countries uh, in other countries you see instances of, of advocates of euthanasia saying hey we can do this without creating the problems that Canada created. That's right. right.
1: And some, some think that, but it cannot be the case. And, and I wrote an article that was uh, translated and published in a Hungarian outlet. And it's a warning from Canada to Hungary, to Hungarians. And in that piece, I specifically make the point that euthanasia cannot be limited. It cannot be limited because as soon as euthanasia is accepted or regarded as a reasonable means to end suffering, Then there's no one who shouldn't qualify for it there's no one who shouldn't be eligible for such relief from suffering and so first euthanasia started for those whose deaths were reasonably foreseeable but that was discriminatory discriminatory against those whose deaths were not then it was expanded to those with physical disabilities that was discriminatory to those with uh mental illness. And so in each case, there's this widening. And if if euthanasia is seen as an acceptable, reasonable means of ending suffering, then there is no rational basis on which to exclude children from it. How dare we, would be the, the thought of proponents who are being consistent. And so I really made the case that there is no way to keep it limited once it is regarded as a good, once it is um, falsely considered a a human right and of course there's no human right to to death but uh these things have been really turned upside down and so this is my warning to to countries everywhere is it cannot be limited it devalues persons with disabilities it undermines the doctor-patient relationship and maybe above all euthanasia saps a whole bunch of opportunities for us to love because it Uh. prematurely cuts short occasions to, to love and be loved, which is the fundamental nature of the human person. Now I must add that the number one kind of suffering that Canadians list as the source that leads them to ask for euthanasia, because the government has been keeping data. And when they say what suffering, what kind of suffering is, is motivating your request, the top thing people say is I've lost the ability to participate in activities that make life meaningful. And you've spoken in your speeches about Viktor Frankl. And we know Man's Search for Meaning is one of the most popular books. And so there's something there that people latch on to. And yet many Canadians find that with an illness, with a disability, with a cancer diagnosis, with the absence of others in their lives, there's no ability to participate anymore in meaningful activities. So I like to ask people, how are you already filling your life with activities? That are meaningful, that wouldn't be threatened or undermined or completely obliterated if something happened to you. Hmm. Because if we're not already preparing ourselves to do the things that are not um, that that don't get totally um, cast aside when, when when we face suffering, then, then our lives are very, very precarious and our sense of worth is very precarious. So what do we have to fall on? What what is this basis? For unshakable meaningful activities, it's the fact that the person can always love and be loved. The person never loses the opportunity to be the object of someone else's love and affection. And so when someone loses hope, when someone doesn't have a sense that their life is worth living, we are called to show affectionate pressure to them not to capitulate to their suicidal ideation but to say it is good you exist and when you forget i'm going to be right beside you to remind you
0: Hmm. um amanda you you've worked on these issues as both a uh political staffer in in a partisan office with the constraints associated with that uh and as um and as an activist, um, uh, if if a young, younger person is coming to you and saying, you know, I, I care about certain issues, similar issues, different issues, maybe I'm looking to chart a career path. Um, how, do, how do you weigh the trade off between uh, being a, an activist uh, out and about without those those constraints, but also without the same level of access uh, or or being uh, in Parliament as a as a staff, or maybe maybe running for office yourself, how do you weigh those trade-offs?
1: Well, personally, I choose both, and I toggle between them, which is maybe the the freedom and opportunity of of working in the kind of supporting role to a member and then uh, doing some advocacy on issue uh, issue based advocacy. But what is consistent, regardless of position or or professional context is a value creation mindset. And this is really the sort of entrepreneurialism I get from being an Albertan, uh, and that is the the desire to create value wherever I go, not just in an economic sense, but really in a in a results sense for whatever good I'm trying to promote. And so, when when you start with a mission and when you start with uh, a basis for your involvement against which to measure your successes, then the question is, how can I? Um, add value? How can I exceed whatever is expected? And that kind of attitude will be uh, respected and appreciated across different fields and contexts. So right now, all of the work I'm doing with the Dying to Meet You project, is it, all of the, the resources that I have go entirely toward events and videos and directly to project expenses. And it's not how I'm earning money personally. To earn money personally, I'm doing a couple side gigs with organizations that see the value of this work and that can engage me in other ways. And so, I think it's very possible to do advocacy or activism um, on in free time or at, at, to integrate that within a broader lifestyle. Uh, but the main thing is is this value creation mindset and staying aligned with people uh, whose mission aligns with mine. And that mission was really clarified. Um, really clarified in a special way about a year and a half ago when I was learning the story of William Wilberforce, uh, a mutual hero. And uh, William Wilberforce wrote a letter to a friend. And he said in this letter that God almighty has set before me two great objects, the prohibition of the slave trade and the reformation of manners or restoring morality, uh, improving the sort of moral uh, conscience in the society. And, I didn't think too much about it at at the time, but the next day I had this incredible clarity that God is setting before me the prevention of euthanasia and the encouragement of hope. And I had this new standard against which to measure my activities. So rather than, oh, could this prevent me from doing something in the future? Or what might this cost me? Or is this a calculated decision? I now measure things against the mission of does this prevent euthanasia and does it also encourage hope? And if so, I do it and if it doesn't, I don't. And this has brought immense clarity of purpose to a whole range of activities, whether volunteer, professional, political. Uh, And I think just starting with a sense of of mission rather than just a job or uh, just kind of something like that has been very, very orienting and something I would recommend to others.
0: Yeah, I think that's a that's a really insightful point about the importance of creating value. I mean, obviously, it's employ- important for any employee in an office, but I think also for people who are conceiving of working in activism. Um, activism isn't just uh, sort of getting paid to have an opinion and tell people what your opinion is. It's it's doing the work of of creating value, um, new ideas. New messages to new audiences that that advance a particular objective, um, but it's it's hard to make it in activism, isn't it? Right, like there there are there are some people um, that are sort of full time involved in expressing ideas and opinions, but it's a uh, I mean I think you're you're fairly unique in having been being able to carve out this niche where you're you're essentially working on storytelling and talking about issues you care deeply about it as a, as a as a career um that's a that's a challenging thing to do especially one opportunity
1: leads to the next so i'm not holding fast because when when it's about the mission it's not about my life uh or my prerogatives it's about the mission if there become better ways of preventing euthanasia and encouraging hope then i follow those if that ends up being some other um forum for advancing those values then i'm i'm not stubborn or rigid in the particular thing that i'm doing now but i'm I I really have this sense of being kept available for a purpose that is unfolding partly in response to the issues and crises of our time. Because years ago, um, for example, 10 years ago, you and I could not have imagined that we would spend so much time fighting euthanasia. It didn't exist. It wasn't a problem. And so being available... And not having everything planned and predicted is first of all necessary for political life where issues are emerging all the time and thrown at you in tons of unexpected ways but it's really necessary for all of us if we're going to be responsive to the crises and needs of the world because every now and again something comes up that fundamentally changes the situation and changes the sort of existential priority of our life so we've got to be available for those, if we're really going to thrive and flourish with a sense of of mission in the world as it is,
0: mm-hmm. um, I, I wanted to ask you uh, on a on a completely different vein about uh, the situation in Israel and Gaza. I know you spent a lot of time there as well, but maybe just as a as a bridge uh, into that first, um, you you were you were citing in Rome on on Christian Jewish relations and. Uh, you you live at the nexus between those those two communities. Um, are there similarities or differences between how uh, these or other of the world's great religious traditions uh, look at issues of of death and dying?
1: Oh well, this is uh, definitely a topic that I explored deeply in Rome. In Rome, I was studying specifically the resurrection of the dead in Jewish thought, and throughout the entire tradition of 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 Jewish thought, Jewish figures, so from the Bible to the Talmud to the medieval period to contemporary thought on bodily resurrection and the impact of taking that uh, doctrine seriously to bioethical questions. What difference does it make if we believe that the body will be resurrected or simply that the body is an important essentially constitutive part of the person and uh, just what I found there is that we, we know in, in this life and in philosophy uh, of the problem of mind-body dualism. When, when minds and bodies are regarded as as distinct and separate, well, that can be a problem because if minds are distinct from bodies, then those minds can manipulate bodies without any limit. And that's what happens with euthanasia, where these sort of pure consciousness uh, technocrats or, or people are managing these broken, fragile bodies. So it reduces certain people to pure matter, and it elevates certain people to pure consciousness. But we are always a unity of of body and soul. So that's mirrored in the afterlife. If a person believes that only their soul is going to exist after death and that the body is irrelevant, then they'll tend to separate those in this world, and I think that has ethical consequences. That's one small piece, but Jews and and Christians, uh, these two traditions with which I'm most familiar, have a lot of regard for the body and a lot of reverence for persons because of these underlying ideas. And these are ideas that have consequences. They also are ideas that uh, are deeply traditional and involve a kind of way of uh, abiding the difficulty and the, the pain of death in community. And so there are so many rituals and you don't need to make it up for yourself because part of the anguish of death is when uh, facing it, you have to kind of come up with what to do. Whereas these traditions, so many people get a sort of solace in not needing to think through it because people show up with the food, you know that you cover the mirrors, you know that you sit on the floor, you know that how many days you're mourning, all these kinds of rituals are a great comfort they don't serve only a practical purpose but they insert you in a tradition with continuity so i love studying the ro- robustness of these and i think it's such a richness anthropologically that gives us an orientation in the world that would otherwise uh leave us at a loss and and kind of adrift.
0: Yeah, that's um, that's really really fascinating. On any one of these questions, we could probably <laughs> go go a long time, but but in the in the sort of fifteen minutes we we have left, um, Amanda, you, you spent a lot of time uh, in Israel, uh, and um, I, I think one of the things that that I wanted to ask for your reflections on is is how uh, the events of October seventh, the horrific uh, Hamas terrorist attack on Israel, um, have uh, have really affected the Canadian uh, Jewish community. Um, I think there were a lot of people who kind of defaulted to their initial reaction to geopolitical event in the Middle East, rather than responding to the um, like the intensely personal uh, pain that this was causing for. Um, for people in the Canadian Jewish community, in particular, and um, and we've seen now a dramatic increase. I think in anti-Semitism. Um, what, what was your um, immediate and, and then longer term reaction to the events of October seventh, and and how do you see this? Uh, how do you see these events playing out in terms of the impact
1: on the community in Canada? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I would say thank you for asking because this is so important and and so pressing. It is one of the greatest issues of our time and um, definitely weighs on my heart heavily. And I know that uh, other members of the Jewish community would first and foremost say, thanks for checking in, thanks for asking, because that ongoing um, interest and concern is really kind of the, the first basis of uh, sort of checking that there's a, a moral pulse in the midst of such uh, a grievous crisis here. So when I first saw the news, it was completely shocking. I was glued to my phone for that entire week, watching uh, the first week in particular, uh, watching a lot of videos and and mostly on on Twitter, Um, but also hearing from friends, friends, um, Israelis, Palestinians, uh, West Bank, Palestinians, uh, some Gazans from some Christian Gazans who I who I know. Have relatives who are still there, so some Gazan Christians in Canada and in the U.S. Uh, who have many, many relatives in the Strip and who became immediately fearful for them. Um, hearing from even friends uh, in Lebanon, uh, and, uh, the the toll that and having friends in all these different places just enhanced the heartbreak and the heart being torn in so many directions, and and the weight of of the devastation and the. Sense of the human toll that this is taking. Uh, I also have friends who are not Israeli, but they were uh, in Israel at the time, and they either chose to leave or they chose to stay and and help out. And then, kind of um, keeping informed by their on the ground kind of assistance that they've been giving. So there, there's that, and then there's of course the domestic reaction, and we've seen a lot of rallies and protests and it was alarming to see calls for violence and uh, examples of dehumanization right here in Canada. I think this was um, and continues to be a major source of alarm, uh, seeing schools evacuated, seeing a, a very tepid response to the security risks for Jewish institutions across Canada, um, hearing of of all kinds of threats, um, And then just being overwhelmed by the the volume of the news, this tension between feeling very responsible to stay informed, but then also wanting to not be consumed by the news that I was consuming. Um, And just thinking, what is justice to everyone involved? Because um, this really does does concern us. And uh, you and I have studied the Holocaust and we have uh, our connections to this history. And I think that really emboldens us to have that awareness that this concerns us, that we can't look away, that we must say something. And so uh, I wrote a, a short piece on uh, on the war, kind of in light of Catholic social teaching, so that um, so that some people could think through the issues who who might not have had it uh, at the fore. Um, and once I did that, Um, I was able to be on Twitter a little bit less because I felt I had done something small as it was within my own field of responsibility, but I continue to be in touch with so many people on the ground and with every video, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's a shocking, completely kind of unspeakable level of violence. The crimes that we're hearing about are, are so awful. And of course, uh, we we grieve loss of innocent life, and um, and hope for uh, a defeat of Hamas, and that um, and that the that the consequences of this war will not wreak havoc. That we will not wreak havoc um, in our own society, uh, but that we will maintain uh, responsible pluralism and be able to live side by side with um, the full force of the laws that prevent against um, calls to violence or direct threats toward minorities so of course could go on and on about this but this is just some of my sort of overflowing <laughs> uh reaction to, to some of it
0: you know th- thank you thank you for giving a very a very personal response because I think um, it's obviously important for us to discuss the the um, the the politics around the situation, but not at the expense of really appreciating the the human dynamics and the and the pain people are experiencing. You you talked about seeing these images on on social media and um you know consuming news without being consumed by the news. And I have found um I, I noticed it sort of since the start of the further invasion of Ukraine, but it's been um again the case in 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 this situation how uh, because of social media, but also because of the kinds of networks that both of us have. Uh, these these conflicts that are geographically on the other side of the world just feel so much more uh, imminent uh, than, than certainly past wars that I've lived through. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that people who are given the opportunity uh, should choose to watch the videos that are being presented at the various screenings? Do you think there's a sort of moral yeah. importance in bearing witness or do you think it's it's just as legitimate for someone to say,, um, you know I I uh, I believe that what happened happened and I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna stand for justice for the victims and I'm gonna call for the hostages to be released but I don't personally need to, go through the the pain of seeing those images? What do, what do you think about, about that choice?
1: My immediate reaction would be probably to say that it depends on what your role and responsibility is. I don't think that absolutely, oh, there goes some light. Um, I don't think that absolutely everyone needs to have the same degree of uh, engagement and bearing witness in, in that way, That um, but that certain persons, Particularly politicians, international leaders, uh, or anyone who would be remotely uh, likely to downplay or minimize. If if you need to be convinced, if you need to see the evidence, then then you need to see it. But um, I don't think every ordinary citizen necessarily uh, should see, for example, the the footage that, for good reason, is not released widely and distributed publicly. It's being shown in deliberate screenings part of that is out of respect to the victims Uh this is not something that we want to so i think that 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 itself gives us a bit of an answer the fact that those who are kind of custodians of the footage are making sure that it is screened but it is screened in such a way that you hand in your phone before you enter and these cannot be uh spread And, and even with some of the propaganda videos being released by hamas News sites are very judicious in in not sharing it. So to sort of exacerbate the propagandistic effect. So anything that could lead to a desensitization, a minimizing or um, a propagation of of something that could like all of that is is really not the point. But um, for those who are being invited to the screenings there's a reason that that invitation is being extended and it should be considered. And I think we have precedence with um, terrible other um, hi- historical uh, crises where people did turn away or choose not to look. And um, many people ask, well, how did people not know the evidence was was right in front of them? And when you're invited to a screening, the evidence is right in front of you and you cannot claim to have not known the full breadth and scope and and there is a way in which confronting these sites changes us like there's something different to going on a holocaust study trip to germany and poland and walking through these sites holding the hands of survivors and listening to them tell the stories and point out the exact barracks in which they saw their family members killed that's very different than, for example, seeing a hologram of a Holocaust survivor telling the story and using AI answering kinds of questions for you, right? So whatever degree of immediacy, and so some politicians are actually going uh, to Israel and and getting close to um, to the war. and and um, basically, that contact shapes your conscience. It forges your conscience differently than hmm. maintaining uh, an awareness from afar because there's something about putting yourself into it in a way that it will be put into you and etched on your mind engraved on your conscience and, and you will be changed to the degree that you need to in order to um to be a witness and not a bystander
0: I was thinking when you were talking about historical examples. I, I recently read a um, an excellent book about the history of Emmett Till, uh, which is a, a you know a powerful example of a, of a case where um, this was a, a black boy who was who was murdered, uh, and and it it uh, it had a major impact on the civil rights discussion in the United States. And and a big part of why it had that impact is because his mother chose uh, an open open casket funeral. So so her her. Uh, private grief was shared uh through these these horrific brutal images of her murdered son uh, and that um uh, you know that 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 wasn't the by any stretch the first uh, instance of such violence it wasn't the only instance of, of, of such violence but um but it it became the story that was that was most heard and that touched off more action because um people could see it and connect with it and um in a different way. At the same time, you you have uh, a lot of engagement and dialogue. You mentioned with uh, with Palestinians, uh, people in the Palestinian Christian community, but other parts of the Palestinian community. Um, what are your your reflections of the conversations you've had with uh, uh, with people from the Palestinian Canadian community or or Palestinians elsewhere? Kind of following October seventh.
1: First of all, I wouldn't say a lot. I think that would be an overstatement for engagement. Uh, and I definitely uh, f- among the the. Um, extent of engagement that I do have, it is more with Palestinian Christians, which is a very unique experience and a very minority within a minority experience that is probably uh, not representative. And it's, it's always hard when we receive personal stories um, and even stories from, from high officials to, um, to make anecdotes into sort of um, survey data. And, and and it's not that it's it's really anecdotal, but um those who I mean, I we know, talked
0: earlier about stories, right? These are these yeah, are important real human absolutely, stories. Absolutely,
1: because they're they're not they're representative, instances, but they're, they're real. Instances. Right? They are very real, and they give a pulse. And so they they are instances that absolutely count. And honestly, I I think back to this um, quotation of of a Holocaust survivor, and he actually said, "It's not that six million Jews were killed; it's that one Jew was killed six million times over." And so we can do the same kind of thing when it comes to um, one time, and then how many times over are we seeing these individual experiences um, uh, of being greatly affected? And so uh, among those, uh, for example, the Palestinian Christians I know who are in Canada and the U.S., they will just want nothing more than for their their families to be out of this whole situation and and in a in a better country. Like they'd like to be reunited with them. In, in Canada or the US and they just want nothing to do with the um, ideologies that are uh, raining and wreaking havoc there. Uh, they just want to extricate themselves from this whole nightmare and I think I think that's a lot of people. I think that's most, most people of goodwill um, just want to get on with their lives. They want the best for their families. They want the best for their neighbors uh, they don't want to have enemies, but when there are enemies, they have to wage this war. But yeah, I think just by and large, um, there's this great desire for being able to get on with a normal, natural life that is not um, tainted, not even t- that that is not overrun by uh, fear and terrorism. I think of just yesterday watching two uh, guys walking down the street in Tel Aviv, and right next to them the this missile falls like right right there and like it's crazy to just think that you could be walking down the street and and have your life interrupted or ended through such things and um, yeah so I I think there's just a lot of a lot of hope for normalcy and that reminds me of an anecdote in a book by Yossi Klein-Halevi which is called Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor and he wrote this book addressed to his Palestinian neighbor of course kind of having one particular in mind but then really to all palestinians and uh he's reflecting on different experiences and he talks about one day driving in jerusalem with his son and this kind of um moment where his son remarks on how um, extraordinary it is to just be driving to school in jerusalem and this really gave him pause and made him think like wow like yeah this was the dream of our ancestors just to be driving you to school in in Israel is is a great gift and so I think most people wish for something so normal um as to be able to rejoice that they can take their kids to school freely in a land that they love uh, without fear of terrorism or dehumanization so I hope for all the innocent uh, and all people of goodwill that they will be able to flourish in the land that they love, um, and with appropriate self-determination in a way that is uh, not threatening and not dehumanizing of the other. This is this is the great aspiration that I think uh, they there uh, yearn for, and for which we can join them in their yearning and support them with our prayers.
0: Mm-hmm. So let me end on this note. I asked you earlier about how uh, Canada is perceived in the context of, of the debates you're involved in on, on death and dying. Uh, in terms of how Canada is perceived uh, in the role it is playing or could play uh, in, um, in, in the Middle East, especially in terms of, of Israel's relationship with, with Palestinians, um, is Canada relevant at all? Is it potentially relevant? Um, uh, what's, um, what's the perception of Canada in the context of, of these events?
1: Well I think that Canada has been really seen as missing in action and to the extent that Trudeau is doing anything it's it's usually harmful to this whole um, like pretty much everything that he's he's doing and saying is turning out to be the wrong thing, the wrong move so um i I don't know um, exactly if others are paying close attention to that or if that's more just kind of the The communities domestically are are frustrated with it, um, but certainly there are other countries that have staked out a much more prominent and decisive uh, contribution in all of this, and it doesn't seem like we are um, at the fore. I think part of it is the extent of uh, domestic concern and that there's a there's a high priority. On addressing the issues touching people's daily lives like housing and cost of living, and that sometimes uh these issues, even though they touch communities that live here in Canada, they can be seen as um, they can be seen by others as abstract and not touching daily life. So again, that's a little bit more on on how Canadians are regarding it. But I, I would say it is a very um small um minute role, like people are not speaking about, people outside of Canada are not really speaking about Canada's responses on this, except for maybe noticing that um, the lack of security for some of our institutions and and the crisis of anti-Semitism on campuses. Um, of course, we've had all these scandals with um, certain people who have been hired by the Liberals to, to do... Uh, precisely work to combat racism or anti-Semitism and then are found to contribute to it. So um, sometimes those scandals and, and um, the, the crises on the universities do reach international attention, but um, I can't think of notable reasons for which Canada has been celebrated in foreign affairs when it comes to the present conflict in the Middle East
0: okay that's that's um that's interesting maybe just to probe one part of that um you know i guess i guess to to ask the question of what canada could be or canada could do uh in the world under a different set of circumstances um you know i i i tend to think that um that we do have a lot of potential capacity to to shape global events more more than we sometimes think we do i mean we're a we're a member of the G7, uh, the Commonwealth, the Francophonie. We, we have a lot of these different potential associations. We're, uh, um, we're, uh, I mean, we're not the biggest player, but we're a significant player in terms of of our of our um, potential heft on the world stage. And and we also have a a, a strong, imperfect, but a relatively strong domestic experience of of pluralism, um, right? Which means that our are international i mean it, it obviously can be can be uh you know there, there can there can be domestic conflicts around these issues but um but at, at our best we are drawing from and hearing from the experience of a much of a much wider diversity of people in our democratic de- debate than countries that are um that are less diverse so that that i think can in general be a be a source of strength um do you think under different leadership, Canada could do more and, and, and what could we do? Uh, I mean, the, I, I do think the question of, of, of an ultimate final status agreement, it, it has to come down to the two parties um, uh, having, having legitimate democratic leadership that sit down with each other at a table to, to work out the, the details. But, but what could Canada do?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. And I I certainly agree with you. Um, Every time I step away from Canada and look at it from a distance, I I do come away with this deepened appreciation for the pluralism within our society and how we are able to live well together uh, compared to many, many other places. Canada does it very, very well. And it's a a serious basis for gratitude. Another thing that strikes me as something to celebrate uh, is the gener the generos- the generosity the philanthropic kind of spirit of Canadians Canadians do give a lot and even amidst the the extent of, of struggling here there still is a, a lot of solidarity shown through giving uh giving to humanitarian causes um so um I don't know if there are like appropriate ways in the past that for certain conflicts and certain disasters, there has been sort of matching efforts for like s- proper humanitarian work. I don't know if there's uh humanitarian work being done in, in such a, by such an organization that could be supported at, at such a level that, um, as we see with natural disasters, given the conflict situation and the co-opting of some of these organizations uh, in the midst of the war, but those kinds of things that, Reward and and follow the generosity of C- Canadians, but then multiply it at the level of um, the government's involvement. And then also, when I think of the the um, the people I know who came to Canada from the region, um, if people want to come, like I think it's important for people who want to stay in the region to be able to stay and to have. A tenable way to stay in the land that they love, and for those who want to leave, I think it is important that there's a possibility to to explore that. And so that's really the basis for um, that's really I think also an opportunity when it comes to welcoming those who would be uh, who would be keen to to come and share our values
0: it's been great catching up with you and normally when we when we meet other people don't uh, don't get to listen in but uh i hope they they find our our conversation interesting and edifying we've talked about um some very very different issues but um i think through through all of them um you bring a really unique perspective that is um was very humanizing right talking about the um uh, Aside from some of the abstractions, who are the people that are involved in these issues? and um, and this is uh, this has been a really good conversation. So thank you for for taking the time. Anything, just before we wrap up, anything you want to add or anything that uh, any loose ends uh, you you want you want to tie up here?
1: Well, yeah, thank you again for the opportunity to chat through such a wide, extensive range of issues. We certainly covered a lot of ground. And yeah, I think this is a, a great basis and kind of call to action to to keep that story. Uh, that human story and that human face on all of the crises, whether they're domestic issues like euthanasia or the conflict in the Middle East, that that behind every headline, there are people struggling, suffering, people like us. Uh, They could be us, and in a certain sense, they are us because we share this uh, humanity um, that hopefully will become the basis for the humanization of our society. So yeah, thank you for the chat.
0: Thank you. Uh, and for those who are listening, we will make sure that there are links uh, to some of the videos uh, and some of the work that Amanda's done uh, in the description of this this podcast so you can uh, follow up and watch some of the videos that we've we've talked about. And uh, thanks again for listening. Leave a review of the Resuming Debate podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can check out uh, other episodes. Uh, we aspire to release a new episode every two weeks uh, it has been a busy fall, but we're gonna we're gonna do our best to resume that uh, that schedule into the parliamentary uh, winter break. Uh, and so, so uh, th- thanks again for listening. Uh, and we will uh, endeavor at least to be back with another episode of resuming debate in two weeks.